This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. This is a talk in a series um, on the goals of practice. And when Shala asked me if I, would, if, if I had a topic, I, the phrase that came to my mind immediately was, don't make things worse. And it sounds pretty glib, but over time I've come to f- frame this as a, a really... Um, powerful description of what I understand now to be the Buddha's deepest teaching. So what I thought I would do would be to, to walk through how I came to see it, see it that way and see if this kind of reframing can be of, of use to you guys. Some of you, I guess in my bio, I do work at Folsom Prison. And I do work, I do, I do uh, Buddhist services some, but the lion's share of my work is in mental health or in mental health um, Contexts. I work with guys who are in solitary, and I meet with them in cages. And um, the prison has has taken a shot at all kinds of mindfulness. They they wanted to see if they could use mindfulness-based pain management to reduce the amount of opioids they were having to pass out. But it turned out that they wanted people in really incredible pain. Um, to see if they could get along without drugs that didn't work. In any case, I, um, I find myself in, in mental health contexts where uh, I'm supposed to do mindfulness-based therapeutic interventions of various kinds. And talking about Buddha, Dharma, Sangha is not on the you know, it's, it's not encouraged because this is mental health and not religious, even though in my mind and probably in many of your minds, this isn't a religious teaching. But I've, I haven't been able to talk about noble truths and I, I, can't, I can't go into the, the, uh, the Buddhist framework. And over time, I've evolved some ways of, of talking about it in street language that makes it vivid for some of the guys. And um, so I'm going to share how, that, how that's worked. Uh, and then I'll try to get done in time so that we can, you know, have some conversation, ask some questions. The Buddhas said I teach about dukkha and the end of dukkha, suffering and the end of suffering, human dissatisfaction and the end of human dissatisfaction. And he, um, he articulated the insight that he had into the nature of human uh, dissatisfaction and suffering in, in the form of the Four Noble Truths. I'm not a fan of the, f- of the phrase, of the label Four Noble Truths. Contemporary scholarship seems fairly uh, um, convinced that this is a label that was appended later um, rather than something that the Buddha used. It was sort of advertising purposes. Stephen, Stephen Batchelor just calls them the four, 
I think of them as four teachings, but I'm going to say four truths just because that's how we understand them. The Buddha said the, the, the articulation of his insight comes in the four truths. The first of these truths, he said, is the truth of dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness. And it's not defined, it's not like a dictionary definition. It's like, it's a list of things that are unsatisfactory. The list reads birth. I mean, we don't remember ourselves, but we pretty much all started with a big no. <laughs> birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you care for. I leave anything out? Anybody miss out on any of that so far? You know, this is, these, are, these are all unpleasant experiences. There isn't a, it's an unpleasant Vedana. There's nothing you would order up on that list for yourself, even though it, it shows up. This is, the Buddha said, understand, I am, this is dukkha, understand it. That's what he says, understand dukkha. Understand what it is, what the nature of our dissatisfaction with the world is. In prison, I can't talk about that, but nobody disagrees with me when I say shit happens. That first truth, shit happens. No way around it. It's on, and, and anybody disagree? Nobody disagrees. Shit happens, and the second truth, we usually make it worse. And the, in the framework of the four truths, the second truth is, is often described as the, the origin of, of dukkha, the origin of dissatisfaction. Those elements in the first truth are all unpleasant. But they, but you know, it's when we complain about them, when we add that on. Actually, complaint is a fabulous marker for dukkha because it's an expression of dissatisfaction, whether the complaint is justified or not. We don't like those things in that first truth, and then we add complaint on, we add resistance on. We usually make it worse. The second truth is usually uh, the, the word that's used is tanha. And tanha is one of a, a group of three sets that I know of, uh, descriptions of what, what the Buddha also calls underlying tendencies. These are dispositions, they're proclivities, they come with our body, with the way we're built, the way we're designed. We come with eyes, we see uh, colors and shapes. Um, we come with a body that wants, that, that wants, we're, we're sort of want machines. I remember walking behind a, a couple of young, young uh, women at, at a mall, at uh, Fairfield Mall, and one of, them, this was saying, one of them was saying to the other, I know I want something, I just don't know what it is. <laughs> you ever feel like that? You're thumbing through a catalog? You know? We're sort of want machines. And, and these three sets, asavas, 
are, is one of the sets which is translated often as calaces or defilements, cankers. The anusias, which are um, under the Buddha, dis- their underlying tendencies, proclivities, dispositions, they come with us. They're what we bring from our side. And tanha. And the, the tanha is, comes in three flavors. Bawa tanha classically is described as the desire, the proclivity, the disposition to want to become, becoming. And kamatanha, the preference for our experience to be pleasant. Kama, pleasant, pleasurable, sensual, sensual. Be pleasant experience. That's a disposition we have. We're built that way. Right? I mean, you don't say, boy, that, that dinner last night was lousy. Let's go again. You know? And then vibhava tanha is, is the, the um, disposition to make the unpleasant stuff go away. The anusias, they're kama anusia, bhava anusia, and patiga anusia, which is anger. Same sort of thing, that resistance, the anger. Kama asava, bhava asava. So these are, these are different ways of describing a disposition in us which, when conditions are right, give rise to greed, hatred, and delusion. The three fires. So in terms of, I mean, we can, we can frame that second truth uh, in, in our understanding of evolutionary biology. This is how we, we you know, find ourselves in the world. We have a, a built-in uh, disposi- survive and reproduce the strongest impulses in us. And we've got this incredibly powerful brain that helps us um, figure out how to be more efficient at doing that. We like our experience pleasant. In terms of evolution, the stuff that's pleasant is the stuff we'll do. And so we, are, we have been cultured over, good grief, how many generations is 100,000 years worth? A, f- a few. So we've been cultured, and then of course, survival is back to the first cells. So we can understand that in terms of, you know, this... Uh, uh, What's, what's present in our cosmology today, rather than, I mean, the Buddha just said, this is, this is our disposition. They're the underlying tendencies, and they give rise to greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed and hatred usually make things worse. They add on to what's already there, the, that list of bummers in the first truth. You know, shit happens, we usually make it worse. We complain. Um, complaint is an add-on. We could respond to some of that unpleasantness with compassion instead of anger and resistance. But the default, you know, the default strategy that we come with is to imagine what will be pleasant, what will make us happy, what will enable us to survive, to move ahead, to carry out our agenda. and then go for it. And it's, it's not really successful. Or maybe it is. How are you guys doing? 
that's the way we that's the way we work. You know, I remember standing in 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 at Pete's, and I was the third person in line. The place was crowded, and the woman in front of me was looking at the pastries in the cabinet, and I'm thinking. Wonder what's going on in her mind. So when I moved up, when I looked at the pastries in the cabinet, and I looked at the lemon cake, and I got this little, you know, frisson of lemon cake. And then I looked at the bear claw and went, oh yeah, sort of taste the bear claw, you know. And then I saw the bagel and went, oh yeah, maybe savory. And I was just, and and that's you know, you, you imagine a future, and then you pick the one that feels the best. And then, of course, when it doesn't pan out, not getting what you want, mm, grumble, grumble, dukkha, complaint. So shit happens. We usually make it worse, but we don't have to. That's the third truth. The third teaching is we don't have to. The Buddha said in, in the third truth that the Cessation of suffering, the cessation of dukkha, is in the cessation of the greed, hatred, and delusion. The cessation of that very craving, that very... Those impulses that arise, you know, they arise almost before... Well, they do. They arise before we know it. The neuroscience people will tell you that they can measure the, the time how long it takes before the formation of an intention and the time we become conscious of it. It's, it's about a fifth of a second. It's the same as the thoughts. Close your eyes to follow your breath and what happens? The th- thoughts. I love to tease the guys, like, you're so strong, you're, but you can't stop your thinking. Oh, yeah? <laughs> you know. and, and the reason you can't stop that thinking is because the thoughts are forming about 200 milliseconds before they come into your awareness. So you're catching them, they're already underway. So shit happens, we usually make it worse. We don't have to, here's how. How do we not make things worse? You know, it's not making things worse is pretty visceral. One of the guys I've been working with who I've become f- pretty fond of over the years, I've been working with him for about four years now, he had an experience, he, he is not in solitary, uh, and he was working in the kitchen, and I came in and saw him one day and he said, how are you doing? He says, well, not so good, I got into it with my boss today, I think I'm going to lose my job. But I don't take back anything I said. Everything I said is true. And I said, okay. When I came back a week later, what happened? Well, I lost my job. But my boss wants me back, and I'm thinking about going back. I don't, I, I don't take back anything I said. But you know what he said? I'm not going to do that again. And it's interesting because often... If you say, don't make things worse, people say, oh, I get that. But then when you're faced with it, you don't, there's no technical skill. Nobody knows quite what to do. How do you, when I, uh, this, this, is, this, is tr- this is true. The, the guys in solitary get moved with a guard on each arm. They're, they're manacled together behind their back, and they have leg irons. So this one guy, um, 
had just gotten into it with the guard, and they just put him down. It, it's hard, it hurts. And uh, I was talking to him about it. I said, well, you know, there's this other guy. I told him a story about another inmate who'd done, done the same sort of thing. As, you know, he, uh, I came in, and I said, how are you doing? He said, well, I, I mixed it up with a guard this week, but it was my fault. Somebody I'd been working with for about two months and I was really impressed. And then the following week when I came back, he said, you know, I could have mixed it up with a guard again, gotten into it, but I knew where that was going to go. And I decided not. When I told that to the first guy, it had never occurred to him that he had any option but to attack when someone insults him. It never occurred to him. And when I told him that story about this guy who said I just decided not to do it, his, his mouth dropped open. He said, what? It just had never occurred to him. So sometimes you know you don't want to make things worse, but you don't know how. So the, Buddha, the Buddha's program is the Eightfold Path. But I don't get to say the Eightfold Path. <laughs> So, you know, cultivating, the Buddha says cultivate the Eightfold Path. That's the task associated with that. Understand Dukkha, first truth. Cultivate the Eightfold Path. Right understanding, the first element of the Eightfold Path, is classically understood to be understanding impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness or insubstantiality. In, to the guys in the prison, I translate that as be realistic. Be realistic. Nothing lasts. And it's not just that nothing lasts, you don't last. You know, Heraclitus said you can't step in the, first, in the same river twice because different water, different, it's a different moment. But there's another side to it. The flip side, Robert Rauschenberg, who was an American painter who lived into this century... Uh, said, you can't look at my paintings twice. And that's not because the molecules and the painting change. It's because you're different. You've changed. So the impermanence is not just the impermanence of what you see out there. It's the impermanence in you. You know, it's, it's not that your car it loses its luster in two weeks after you drive it off the lot. It's that you've changed. And a lot of the, uh, you know, not getting, losing what you, what you care for, losing what you cherish, because things change. You know, that's, that's um, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and, and sorrow and anguish and dukkha and complaint. Certainly, if you assume that things are going to stay the same. The big one is understanding dukkha, the, the second element. Under, cultivate an understanding of this. Under, first truth, I'm dukkha, understand me. Fourth truth, cultivate your understanding of dukkha. Understand more deeply. You know, when the Buddha, when the Buddha described the Eightfold Path, he said, one of right understanding 
For one of right understanding, the other seven elements follow. For one of wrong understanding, the other elements don't follow. And the opposite of right view is not wrong view. It's not like, um, I mean, it's not some other view. The opposite of right view would be delusion. Thinking that you've got a clue. Really? Does anybody have a clue? I mean, you know, we start. Does anybody know what's what's what this is? What's going on? Really? My my daughter posted on her Facebook page the three stages of life. This is my daughter. The three stages of life: birth. What the fuck is this? Death. You know, we really don't know. You know, we, we, think, we, we think we know. We're older and wiser than them that came before. Oh my gosh. You know, and, and of course the delusion of substantiality and es- essence behind anatta. The Buddha said, what, is, what conditions give rise to right view? Appropriate attention, he says, and the words of a spiritual friend. Because the words of a spiritual friend will keep you focused on the Eightfold Path. So it could be a teacher, it could be a friend. When he said Sangha is all of the holy life, he's talking about that. He's not talking about another party to go see Groundhog Day again. Right understanding, right view, right story, right narrative, it's all the same thing. Talking about what we think is going on. Right story. And, and, and then right intention. Because our intentions follow from our understanding. Classically, right intention is translated as uh, renunciation. I'm not a fan of renunciation, but it, I know what it's getting at. Renunciation feels a little aversive to me. But he's saying, don't, you know, abandon greed, hatred, and delusion. I think, I, I actually like the word ignore better. Just ignore it. It may show up. It shows up, you know, a fifth of a second before I thought it was going to. You know, ignoring it. Ignoring delusion is interesting. How do we know, how do we understand delusion? Well, first of all, if you think you're not deluded, that's the biggest clue. Just however, one one of, uh, what is it? Christopher Titmus, one of Shilas and my early teachers, used to say, whatever you think is wrong. <laughs> you know. Right intention, you know, if you abandon or ignore greed and, avert, and aversion, greed and hatred, then the opportunity is present for compassion, for responding to the elements of that, 
shit list with compassion instead of with anger and aversion. With compassion and equanimity. For the guys I say, be smart, don't be stupid. Be smart. Never, you know, you don't have to hurt yourself. Like that poor guy who thought he had to take on the guards. You don't have to hurt yourself. Be smart. And then come the three elements that I think, for me, these are the heart of right speech, right action, right livelihood. Living, speaking, acting, assembling a life without dukkha. This is the don't make it worse. Don't speak words that make it worse. Sometimes it's not clear what to say. And so this is something to cultivate. It's a skill to develop over time. You know, you can't expect the first time you take a swing at a major league curveball that you're going to hit it. First time I ever saw one of those, I thought the ball was going to hit me in the head and I fell to the ground and the umpire called a strike. <laughs> it was really embarrassing. <laughs> for, for a 16-year-old, it was really, it was not good. <laughs> Speech, action, and livelihood often gets, often gets um, uh, reduced to the precepts, you know, right speech, right action, uh, right speech is don't speak falsely, don't speak harshly, don't speak divisively, don't speak, um, well there's four of those, and then there's speak timely and, and out of kindness and we've got our checklist. But most of the time, you know, the issue is to speak in a way that doesn't, that doesn't make things worse, that doesn't harm that doesn't cause, you know, when you, when you mention some accomplishment you have, it could wind up making other people feel bad. So, you know, you can decide maybe just not to say anything. You know, right action, not always don't take what's not freely given. What, what happens with a child and a gun? Or someone who's drunk and their car keys? You know. Right speech, right action, right livelihood aren't defined by rules. <clears throat> because rules never take into account the context in which something is occurring. And so navigating speech, action, livelihood it requires us to be alert, requires us to have a well, mindful attention, really, to be able to know what's going on, and, not ju and, and also some judgment, the ability to assess whether what's going on is harmful or not. Samasati, the word sama is what's tr translated as right, which is, I think, it's unfortunate because we want to translate one word with one word. But in this case, the word sama uh, really, for me, is best translated uh, with a phrase, which is, you know, this element of the Eightfold Path. It's the mindfulness that enables us to ignore or abandon 
greed, hatred, and delusion. It's the, the understanding, the story, the narrative that enables us to live without making things worse. And I tell the guys, it takes practice, right effort. It takes practice. And then there's samasati and samasamadhi, the meditation elements. Now I think right meditation, samasamadhi, I mean samasati, is not mindfulness of breathing. That's like finger, finger exercises, you know? Mindfulness of pleasant and unpleasant. Mindfulness of our mind states. The idea, samasati, is the mindfulness that enables us to abandon greed, hatred, and delusion. To abandon, to, to, to stop suffering, to keep from suffering. So it's mindfulness of dukkha. Can we recognize dukkha? We don't recognize it. So Richard Farina had a book in the 60s titled I've Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up to Me. Right, speech, action, livelihood, living without complaining. Is it possible to put together a complaint-free life? That's a life without dukkha. It takes practice, and it takes appropriate attention. Samasati, samasamadhi, enough stability so that we can watch the stuff that's coming up in our mind in real time and not take the bait. <laughs> you know? So shit happens, we usually make it things worse. We don't need to. Here's how. Be realistic, be smart and not stupid. Don't make things worse. Try to find a, you know, setting up a, a vision of a complaint-free life gives you a model. Complaint-free takes practice. Give yourself some, some time to cultivate some skills. This is a skill. This is what is to be done by those who are skilled in goodness, or the opening lines of the Metta Sutta. Skilled, it's a skill. It takes practice and it takes appropriate attention. So when we understand the origin of our dissatisfaction, is something that's built into us and we and it, it's happening on its own. But certainly before we have a chance to, there are no neurons that go between the like and want. There's, you know, it, it happens, it's, it's automatic. So we can learn to be able to recognize these impulses as they arise and to not take the bait because it's, the bait is the stuff in the catalog or the stuff in the mall. We want something. We don't know what it is. The, the experience of dukkha, when you feel it, it feels like a lack. There's something missing. It's not contentment. Contentment isn't a big, isn't a big uh, thing in this culture. 
as you may have noticed. But I think that's because it's not a big thing for people. Any of our ancestors who thought about contentment for very long would probably not live long enough to pass on their genes. So we got, we, we got, you know, craving with a vengeance. Bawa tanha. So just the vision of not making things worse. And giving us a chance to respond with compassion instead of aversion. If we don't set ourselves up with delusion, delusional expectations, that you know, things should stay the same. I know everything's impermanent, but not the Bill of Rights. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it's a frame that, that has enabled a bunch of guys who are pretty much not uh, educated in the Dharma or in much to get it. So I wanted to offer that to you and to see if that framework is of use, makes sense, is helpful. Thank you very much for your attention. Don't make things worse. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.